December 5th, 2019 was a sunny day in Rukaipi, an Arctic village located on Russia's northern coast. The sun reflected off the snow, blinding Tatyana Minenko as she hiked through the silent town. Tatyana was the head of the local polar bear patrol. She was often seen strolling around the village perimeter with binoculars and a rifle. On an average day, this job wasn't thrilling. But recently, the polar bear patrol had seen an uptick in activity. A family of bears had made their home just a mile and a half outside of town. Sightings were now routine. Sometimes the bears would pass directly through the village on their way to hunt seals. But in 2019, the sea ice had decreased to a fraction of its normal thickness, meaning the bears couldn't get to their usual meals. Unfortunately for the villagers, polar bears are one of the few predators that will hunt humans, too. Whenever a bear was spotted, Tatiana put out an alert and set off to deter the white beast. Most of the time, that only required a single shot in the air. But this morning was different. The town was in lockdown, and Tatiana wasn't sure if her rubber bullets and flare guns would be enough for the job. Because she wasn't going up against just one or two hungry bears. There were 56 of them. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, in honor of Earth Day, we're kicking off our two-part special on climate change. This episode will explore the history and science behind global warming. We'll dive into why scientific warnings went unheeded for decades until disaster struck and how modern conservation efforts might be too little, too late. Next time, we'll investigate a few intriguing conspiracy theories surrounding global warming, like the origins of the money behind climate studies and how big corporations benefit from green strategies. We'll also examine the scientific validity of climate change and whether it really could mean the end of humanity. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. 
So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Tatiana Minenko and her team were able to drive off the 56 polar bears that December afternoon. Luckily, the rocket flares, rubber bullets, and powerful spotlights deterred the bears from harming any residents. But the encounter had been years in the making. 2019 wasn't the first year Tatiana had dealt with an increase in polar bear activity. A year earlier, two dozen bears invaded Rakaipi, stalking the streets. They kept the town on high alert for nearly a week. There were a few theories as to why the bears were coming into town, but each one pointed to a single cause, thin sea ice. Over recent years, the retreat of Russian sea ice grew worse as average annual temperatures rose. Warmer summers meant the ice formed later in the year, and warmer winters meant it never got very thick overall. Many news and science publications pointed to Rakaipi's polar bear problem as a symptom of anthropogenic climate change. Anthropogenic means caused by humans. The idea is that humans use fossil fuels, giving rise to global warming, which brings about climate change. But humans have only been around to cause those changes for a few thousand years. After all, dinosaurs couldn't have burned fossil fuels. They are fossil fuels. This means that in the timeline of planetary history, anthropogenic climate change is a very recent phenomenon. Most of the concern is about how fast humans seem to be affecting the planet, according to scientific measurements. However, Earth's regional climates have shifted many times over the millennia. During medieval times, average temperatures were probably about a degree higher in Europe. There have also been significant ice ages in the past 10 million years. The problem is, investigating climate change meshes together recent science with ancient evidence, leading to a lot of uncertain conclusions. But before we dive into the story of what changes are happening, we need to understand how these changes occur. And that requires a trip to 19th century France. In 1822, French mathematician and philosopher Joseph Fourier was obsessed with answering one simple question. Why isn't the Earth on fire? It seemed to Fourier that the Earth should keep heating up under the constant warmth of the sun's energy. 
With any other fire or heat, objects continue warming until they combust or cook. So Fourier guessed that something must be reflecting the sun's heat away from our planet. Then he realized that the same thing that was reflecting the sun's heat was also keeping some of it in at night. Otherwise, the earth would freeze whenever the sun went down. One could compare this overnight warmth to the consistently higher temperatures occurring inside a greenhouse. Fourier was essentially describing the planet's atmosphere, a cushion of air several miles thick between the Earth and outer space. However, this was long before scientists had any evidence about the thickness or composition of our atmosphere. At the time, nobody had been more than a few thousand feet up in a hot air balloon. So Fourier lacked the tools and concepts to prove his theory. All he knew was that our planet kept some heat in and reflected the rest. But Fourier's idea stuck around, giving us the term greenhouse effect. Forty years later, another scientist named John Tyndall figured out the why behind Earth's atmospheric heat blanket. The answer was gas. In 1862, Tyndall was experimenting with how heat moves through different gases in the atmosphere. He found that even small amounts of certain gases could absorb heat, and one of them was carbon dioxide, otherwise known as CO2. Tyndall had a good analogy for this. He compared carbon dioxide to a dam holding back water. Essentially, the CO2 worked like a dam itself, and the water was the sun's heat, causing it to pile up in the atmosphere. But the moderate temperature of Earth, which allows life to exist without freezing or burning, relies on a very delicate balance of this CO2. This presented a startling new question. What happened if there was an imbalance in the Earth's atmosphere? This question informed the work of another scientist a few decades later. In 1895, Swedish chemist Svante Arrhenius expanded on Tyndall's research. Although Arrhenius was more interested in understanding how ice ages occurred. At the time, scientists had geological evidence that ice ages had happened, thanks to things like rock layers and glaciers, but they had no idea how these ice ages started. This left many scientists unnerved by the prospect of another unpredictable cataclysm. To try and predict this drastic climate change, Arrhenius created a scientific model, one that demonstrated a relationship called feedback between water vapor and CO2. Feedback was essentially like the butterfly effect. It measured how one small change could make other things worse. For example, a heavy rain might drop more water in a lake. This produces more clouds when it evaporates, therefore causing even heavier rains later on. But the increase in clouds meant more heat was getting trapped. Arrhenius discovered that CO2 affected this water vapor, much like a volume knob controls sound. The dial only needs to turn slightly to create a big change. If CO2 is turned up, even more heat gets trapped in those clouds. Except Arrhenius was experimenting with removing CO2 from the atmosphere. He believed it would lead to cooler air, and he was right. He found that reducing the amount of CO2 by half could trigger another ice age. 
He also made a few calculations to see what would happen if CO2 were added to the atmosphere. When he doubled the amount he measured in the air in 1895, his model showed that the average global temperatures could rise by 6 degrees Celsius. That's over 10 degrees Fahrenheit. His estimate also showed that it would take 3,000 years for that much CO2 to accumulate in the atmosphere. But Arrhenius believed this was impossible thanks to the ocean. That's because seawater naturally absorbs CO2, and luckily, over 70% of our planet is covered with seawater. So, to Arrhenius, a natural reduction in carbon dioxide and a subsequent ice age seemed far more likely. Sitting in his freezing home in Sweden, Arrhenius began to wonder if global warming might actually be a good thing. He felt that increasing CO2 could lead to more balanced temperatures worldwide. Ultimately, Arrhenius and his 19th century counterparts didn't believe any man-made effect was possible on such a huge atmospheric scale. It would take way too much CO2 to drastically affect the entire planet. They assumed the Earth's climate would regulate itself forever, even if they didn't fully understand how. After all, in the 1890s, the only thing that could conceivably affect global climate was a volcano. Historical records from Asia and Europe showed that volcanic eruptions often led to colder temperatures in the surrounding region. When a volcano burst, it spewed so much ash and gas into the atmosphere that it blocked the sun, and regional climates were affected for years afterwards. In fact, earlier in the 19th century, Indonesia's Mount Tambora had erupted so violently that it caused freezing temperatures in Europe during the summer. These massive eruptions were rare, but they kept climate scientists focused on what global cooling might mean. Volcanoes proved that another ice age was much more terrifying than some balmy winter weather. Unfortunately, none of them imagined that humans would invent machines that could surpass the powerful effects of a volcano, just in the opposite way. Coming up, humanity's carbon dioxide production becomes unstoppable. The Internet. What would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loie, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify.
This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now back to the story. By the early 20th century, scientists understood that a decrease in CO2 lowered temperatures while an increase of CO2 could raise them. They just didn't think it was possible to do so on a planetary scale. The amount of carbon dioxide required was simply unfathomable. The only thing powerful enough to shift the climate was a volcanic eruption, and they usually led to cooling periods. Climate scientists assumed that since the ocean could absorb CO2, adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere wasn't a cause for concern. Then the 20th century arrived. It brought a wave of urban expansion and technological development, which created an uptick in fossil fuel usage unlike anything else in history. By the early 1900s, new inventions had set off a massive industrial revolution across the globe. Companies built huge factories with steam-driven machinery, and that steam was produced by coal-fired boilers. And burning coal produced smoke, which pumped tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. Coal had been used for centuries on a smaller scale for things like cooking and heating. But industrialization brought an exponential increase. One of the first publications to question the uptick was the magazine Popular Mechanics. An article in their March 1912 issue finally put some numbers to the CO2 levels in the atmosphere. According to the article, the U.S. burned an estimated 500 million tons of coal in 1911 alone, putting over 1.7 billion tons of CO2 into the air. By this point, there was already an estimated 1.5 trillion tons of natural CO2 in the atmosphere. So the author figured that if coal burning continued at the same rate, that amount of CO2 would double in 200 years. This seemed ominous, but nobody believed it would make the planet uninhabitable. But the burn rate did not stay the same. New developments in electricity meant factories operated 24 hours a day, and they were powered by coal, too. As factories expanded, cities grew rapidly. Coal fueled the trains that brought raw materials and workers to the assembly lines. Huge steamships burned coal to drive their massive propellers. Coal powered the entire Industrial Revolution. And unfortunately, it wasn't the only source of CO2. The early 20th century also saw the proliferation of the gasoline engine and the automobile. 
In 1900, there were only around 4,000 cars made in North America. By 1915, there were over 892,000, a 22,000% increase. And nearly every car's engine ran on petroleum. Also known as oil, petroleum could be refined for hundreds of uses like kerosene, gasoline, or plastic, all of which dumped CO2 into the air as well. Between coal and petroleum-powered industries, humans were producing more carbon dioxide than ever before. Meanwhile, sales and production numbers set new records. Automobile and manufacturing companies raked in profits. Any concerns about environmental impact fell by the wayside. After all, economic expansion was the primary goal. Especially as World War I consumed the globe at the end of the decade, assembly lines grew endlessly to supply the war effort. For the next 20 years, the only atmosphere people cared about was at their local bar as prohibition seized headlines. When the Great Depression hit, the average American wasn't thinking about environmental conservation. However, one vital discovery was made, just in time for another world war. In 1938, amateur English climatologist Guy Callender produced a new model based on the work of Swedish chemist Arrhenius. Callender found that earlier scientists were wrong about affecting the atmosphere on a global scale. Not only was it possible, it was already happening. CO2 levels were rising and affecting global temperature. The total concentration of carbon dioxide was up around 10% since Tyndall first experimented with it in the mid-1800s. This led Callender to a startling conclusion. The Earth was getting hotter, and it appeared to be our fault. Callender took his research to the British Royal Meteorological Society. He presented it to a group of six professional meteorologists. However, all of them were very skeptical of carbon dioxide's power to affect global temperature. No one was more critical than George Clark Simpson, the head of the group and arguably the top climate scientist in Britain. Much of Simpson's career had been spent studying Antarctic cold, and he liked measurements, not models. He dismissed Calendar outright, insisting that CO2 had no measurable effect on climate. Simpson also stressed that amateurs had no place in the field of climate studies. Such science required a high-level education in the field of meteorology, and Calendar didn't even have a PhD. It didn't matter to them that Calendar did have years of data and projections. The way they saw it, carbon dioxide only comprised a tiny fraction of the Earth's total atmosphere. It couldn't possibly matter in the grand scheme of the planet. And with much of the globe descending into war, there were more pressing concerns. In spite of this rejection, Callender was adamant. He concluded his report by saying, quote, Man is now changing the composition of the atmosphere at a rate which must be very exceptional on the geological time scale. Essentially, Callender believed humans were polluting the air too fast for our planet to adapt. Sadly, it would be another 20 years before anybody heeded his warning. 
1957, a scientist named Charles David Keeling set up a series of experiments to study what was now called the calendar effect. Up until then, the primary obstacle in proving the rise in CO2 was instrumentation. And Calendar hadn't gone around the world with his own calibrated thermometer. He'd collected measurements taken by others, which could have been performed with faulty instruments. Not to mention, infrared technology that accurately measured CO2 didn't exist in the 19th century or when Calendar began his studies. There was no way to create a precise average measurement for the entire planet. Keeling was determined to rectify this. Instead of looking at CO2 on the scale of tons, he looked at a microscopic measurement called parts per million. This measurement of gas particles gave a more accurate picture of the global atmosphere. It was like measuring sugar by teaspoons instead of truckloads. The problem was, any measurement of air was going to be affected by locality. For example, the amount of CO2 in Los Angeles would be different than at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. Keeling set out to take measurements from climates that were unsullied by heavy industry. This established a clear baseline for the whole Earth. If even the cleanest atmosphere was getting more CO2, then the entire world must be affected. In 1957, Keeling traveled to Antarctica. After taking some measurements there, he went to the top of Mauna Loa in Hawaii, one of the largest volcanoes in the world. He continued measuring at these locations for the next two years. When he compared his results from the sites, Keeling's data showed that the base level of CO2 in the atmosphere was rising. It was clearly noticeable over the two-year span. More alarmingly, oceanographers were finding that seawater didn't absorb CO2 the way they previously thought. The oceans that everyone believed were cleaning the air like a sponge weren't. These findings in the late 1950s forced many climate scientists to return to the question of global warming with newfound urgency. Unfortunately, it was too little too late. By the early 1960s, computer technology had progressed, allowing scientists to build hugely complex climate models. They incorporated thousands of data points, not just temperature, things like ice thickness, rainfall, human population, even solar radiation levels to predict global changes. One of these computer models applied Keeling's ongoing measurements. The CO2 observation center in Mauna Loa was still spitting out data every day. And when plugged into these computer models, the stats on CO2 made it look like the planet was breathing. This was because the carbon dioxide levels changed in each hemisphere, depending on the seasons, thanks to plant life. Trees and other greenery could absorb CO2. In fact, they needed it to grow. But in the winter, when plants shriveled, they weren't taking in the same level of CO2. It was like the planet was taking a breath using the plants. They inhaled CO2, but used only a small part of it. Then they exhaled the rest. The problem was that each exhale was showing a greater concentration of CO2, meaning the average levels were curving upward. This keeling curve allowed for projection into the future. 
the computer models estimated that doubling the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere would raise the global temperature by 2 degrees Celsius, or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. As scientists continued to study climate models throughout the 1960s, the trends seemed manageable. There didn't appear to be a cause for alarm. But just like 50 years before, their forecasts assumed that carbon dioxide production would stay relatively the same. Climate scientists predicted the upward curve would be gentle, growing slowly over a long period of time. Unfortunately, very few anticipated another exponential increase in CO2 emissions. And even fewer anticipated a climate catastrophe. Coming up, global warming claims its first victims. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Now back to the story. By the 1970s, Climate scientists were finally looking at man-made carbon dioxide and its effect on global temperatures. The combined work of Arrhenius, Callender, and Keeling proved that the Earth was warming up. Carbon dioxide emissions skyrocketed in the second half of the 20th century. Transportation advancements saw even more jet airliners and massive tanker ships taking to the sky and sea. The automobile industry also continued to expand following the construction of 40,000 miles of new highways in the U.S. alone. The Earth couldn't keep up with these developments, and with them came new, unforeseen consequences of human habitation. Chemical pollution from these industries was changing the composition of seawater. This, in turn, affected the ocean's ability to absorb CO2 in unpredictable ways. Some oceanographers estimated that the seas might only take in 10% as much CO2 as originally thought. They were concerned that more pollution might even lower that percentage. To make matters worse, the 1970s saw a huge rise in deforestation to make room for livestock and increase lumber supply. The first road to traverse the Amazon rainforest was finished, providing new access for loggers and industry. The trees and plants that took in CO2 were disappearing at astonishing rates. A 1979 study by the U.S. National Academy of Science put a dire punctuation on the decade. They concluded that with rising emissions, there was, quote, no reason to doubt that climate changes will result and no reason to believe that these changes will be negligible. In other words, change was coming and it wasn't going to be good. The climate scenario grew worse throughout the 1980s 
As President Reagan sought the support of oil executives, and their talking points worked their way into his speeches. He even made quips like, trees cause more pollution than automobiles do, and a tree is a tree. How many more do you need to look at? The disregard for environmental damage disappointed 1980s climate experts. They felt the decade was filled with critical missed opportunities to stop some of the most damaging trends in economic development. However, one technological advancement in the 80s did prove valuable to the fight against global warming. We finally got a bird's eye view of the planet's atmosphere from outer space. Throughout the 1980s, NASA developed a program for studying Earth's climate. It was called Mission to Planet Earth, and it melded with other agency programs to provide data about our planet from above. The program eventually culminated in multiple launches that put weather and geomapping satellites into orbit. The missions were staggered out over several years and became known as the Earth Observing System. NASA was establishing a climate monitoring apparatus, much like Keeling had done on Mauna Loa. The satellites could take measurements of the atmosphere from above with highly calibrated instruments. They could even pinpoint spikes in CO2 over particular land masses. It was a high note for climate studies, providing new cutting-edge data on the changing atmosphere. But there was still doubt among politicians, especially in the U.S. They didn't believe the data showed an impending threat. So in 1988, one of NASA's top researchers decided to prove the point once and for all. On June 23rd, James Hansen, the director of NASA's Goddard Institute, arrived at the U.S. Capitol building with a single mission, convince Congress that global warming was a threat. Hansen had been invited to speak by Senator Tim Worth of Colorado. Worth had been doing his own digging and learned about the calendar effect and the Keeling curve. He wanted Hansen to tell the story of climate change and offered to help. With a bit of irony, Worth seems to have arranged to have the air conditioning turned off in the room while Hansen spoke about rising temperatures. When Hansen took the stage, he was already sweating. So were the other senators seated before him. He told them that humans were causing the Earth to warm up, and it was time to stop debating the facts. To back up his argument, Hansen pointed out the window. The thermometers read 101 degrees Fahrenheit, a record high for Washington, D.C. in June. But Hansen had more than that one warm day as proof. The first five months of the year had been warmer than any other time since record-keeping began. He concluded that 1988 was likely to be humanity's warmest year ever. Of course, Hansen didn't suspect that this heat wave was just getting started. Hansen's speech at the Capitol set off a wave of new interest in global warming. The number of scientific articles written about it tripled. Just a year later, environmental journalist Bill McKibben published a book called The End of Nature. It was the first text that boiled down climate change science for non-scientists. In it, McGibbon calculated the tipping point for carbon dioxide. 
CO2 had surpassed more than 350 parts per million in 1989. If the atmosphere became any more saturated, McGibbon speculated that some climate changes would become permanent, like the loss of sea ice. Unfortunately, the CO2 levels continued to rise through the 1990s, and so did global temperatures. Around Earth Day 1998, an article in the science journal Nature featured a datagraph called the hockey stick. It compiled Earth's average temperatures for the past six centuries. It showed a long, flat average for 500 years. Then the temperatures skyrocketed in the last 100. It looked like a hockey stick lying on its side. This meant the Earth wasn't just heating up. It was heating up incredibly fast. Though the actual temperature increases were fractions of a degree, on a planetary scale, it was a huge change, and practically overnight. Just before the hockey stick graph was published, most of Europe and over 40 other nations agreed to reduce carbon emissions. This measure was called the Kyoto Protocol. The act set an emissions reduction target of around 5% below 1990 levels. Unfortunately, the United States withdrew from the protocol four years later, after the election of President George W. Bush. But four years after that withdrawal, a stark reminder of climate change struck the U.S. The disaster gripped headlines and earned an infamous name, Katrina. On August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans head-on. The city flooded overnight, and severe winds destroyed countless buildings, causing over $100 billion in damage. Nearly 1,200 people were killed. Later studies showed that Hurricane Katrina would have been an abnormally strong disaster in any century. But the damage it caused was much more severe because of climate change, specifically due to rising sea levels. As the planet warmed up, the polar ice melted. This dumped billions of gallons of new water into the oceans. Essentially, the sea was like a bathtub filled to the brim, and the hurricane was a hand sloshing through the water. It was bound to overflow. Though man-made construction errors compounded the damage, the storm surge was up to 60% worse than it might have been a century earlier. Higher sea levels meant more water cascaded ahead of the storm and inundated the city. The severity of Hurricane Katrina and other storms like it inspired a new field within climate studies called extreme event attribution. Climate change seemed to be increasing the number of severe weather events in the early 2000s. Stronger storms weren't the only fatal results. Africa experienced longer droughts, Russia lost a whole season of wheat crops, and Southeast Asia endured endless deluges of rain. And then there were the chain reaction disasters. For example, along China's Yangtze River, climate change led to increases in schistosomiasis, a parasitic infection that leaves blood in the gastrointestinal tract. A 22-year-long study showed that as the rainy seasons grew longer and more severe, the river flooded more frequently. This led to a proliferation of a snail species that carried the parasites. 
More snails led to more infections, and during these wetter years, almost three times as many victims contracted the disease. Bloody urine was possibly fatal and became one of the many unpredictable results due to abnormal weather. By 2015, the effects of climate change were becoming too numerous to track. The rising temperatures and emission levels were now a global emergency. That same year, the Mauna Loa Monitoring Station in Hawaii hit a stunning new benchmark. For the first time, the average atmospheric carbon dioxide was over 400 parts per million. This was far beyond the projected 350 parts per million estimate, the point of no return. The changes to Earth's equilibrium were happening faster than a 19th century scientist would have ever dreamed of and faster than any 20th century scientist could believe. Sadly, while academics debated over annual CO2 and temperature reports, part of a Canadian town called Fort McMurray burned to the ground. The terrifying images of Fort McMurray residents evacuating through 10-story flames went viral in May 2016. The fire started during an abnormal heat wave that brought temperatures over 30 degrees higher than average. Combined with a dry, warm winter in Canada, the surrounding forest was like a tinderbox. Nobody knew where the first spark came from, but the fire tore into the city. 80,000 people got trapped in its path. Climate researcher Dr. Mike Flanagan notes that since 1970, the amount of Canadian land scorched by wildfires had doubled. He feels they are now unavoidable with such abnormally hot, dry conditions. Deadly wildfires weren't just affecting Canada. Two years after Fort McMurray's tragedy, California's campfire ignited the northern part of the state during a severe drought. It became the deadliest blaze in the state's history, killing 85 people. The flames ravaged over 150,000 acres and almost 14,000 homes. It was one of the costliest disasters in the world that year. The increase of fires, floods, and droughts around the world are now consistently headline news. Carbon emissions and environmental regulations often dominate government summits, and 17 of the 18 warmest years in human history have all been since 2001. The last time Earth had this much CO2 was 800,000 years ago, long before modern humans were even present. So now, the question facing scientists and humanity isn't whether the Earth will survive these changes, it's whether we will. But that isn't the only question. There's also skepticism about the severity of anthropogenic climate change. We'll dive deeper into some of those questions next time. Starting with conspiracy theory number one. Global warming isn't real. The data is being faked by a vast united group of scientists. Or conspiracy theory number two. Climate shifts might be a totally natural process and humanity isn't to blame at all. Or conspiracy theory number three. Corporations are manipulating the facts about climate change and turning massive profits from the hype. 
For the last century, fossil fuel industries have made an unfathomable amount of money, but they're also pressure cooking the planet. At the very least, it's worth finding out the real cost of our technological development. Who is getting paid? And who is paying the price? Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with part two of our Earth Day special. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.